You're listening to the Molten Sulfur Podcast from Molten Sulfur Press. I'm Tristan Zimmerman. This episode is brought to you by beloved Patreon backer Arthur Brown. Thanks for helping keep the lights on. If you want to help keep this podcast going alongside Arthur, head over to the Patreon page. And thank you. The Scheming Landlord of Magomero W.J. Livingston operated a plantation in Malawi in the early 20th century. He was ruthless, capricious, exploitative, and cruel. He worked within the system, leaning on the letter of the law when he could, and enforcing the spirit of the law when he couldn't. His schemes make him a fantastic villain, and he can be easily added to any setting where landlords control large estates. Magomero, the Livingston Plantation, was located in the Shire Highlands of Malawi in East Africa. The region was mostly unpopulated following a horrific combination of war, epidemic, and famine in 1862, unintentionally triggered by the bad decisions of W.J. Livingston's older relative, the noted British explorer Dr. David Livingston. When the Livingston family later, circa 1890, decided to start a plantation at Magomero, there weren't many locals left. The upside for the Livingstons was that the local chiefs sold them 169,000 acres of land for really cheap. The downside was that there wasn't much local labor to farm that land. Enter the Lomwe. These were people in neighboring Mozambique dissatisfied with the living conditions and forced labor the Portuguese colonial government made them endure. So starting around 1900, they crossed the border into British-occupied Malawi in search of land. Thousands of Lomwe settled in Magomero. W.J. Livingston, the plantation owner, allowed them to form villages on his land in exchange for a promise to provide a month of labor on his crops every year. The British saw this as rent, but it was really just corvée labor, a common form of serfdom. The British colonial government was also trying to find ways to squeeze some money out of the Malawian labor force. Ostensibly, Malawi was a protectorate, not a colony, and was not being run for profit. In practice, the colonial government looked after the interests of the British merchant and planter class. Malawians, who were mostly self-reliant farmers and needed almost nothing from outside the village, had no reason to go work for the English. But without workers, how are the English to make any money? The answer was a hut tax. The colonial government mandated every Malawian family pay a small fee for every hut they owned. Of course, Malawians engaged in a cashless economy and didn't have actual money with which to pay the fee. So the government, uh, permitted them to provide a month of labor to a local plantation owner in lieu of paying the tax. Between the rent and the hut tax, every Lumway family settled on Magomero owed W.J. Livingston one male worker to provide two months of corvée labor every year. For the first few years, 1903 to 1905, he didn't collect. He was still establishing the plantation and didn't have much work for his laborers to do. But once his cotton fields got going around 1908, his need for labor exploded. The Livingston family incurred serious debts establishing Magomero, so W.J. Livingston called upon all his corvée laborers and sent enforcers to rough up anyone who didn't comply. The two-month requirement is a bigger imposition than it sounds like. 
First, the Shire Highlands have a short wet season. The months Livingston needed his corvée laborers in the cotton fields were the same months those laborers needed to be at home in their own gardens, growing food for their families. Second, some of the Lomway villages were as far as 10 miles away from the cotton fields. Workers had to wake up in the middle of the night, book it to the cotton fields to be present at 6 a.m. for roll call, work until noon for Livingston, then book it home and try to squeeze in a little labor beside their wives in the garden. Still, the system, while undeniably exploitative, was manageable. The situation was still better than in Mozambique, and most Lomwe families made it work. Then cotton yields began to fall. It turned out that cotton was only profitable in the Shire Highlands in its first year. Once the crop began to exhaust the soil, Livingston couldn't make it pay. So he had to clear new fields every year, ballooning his need for labor. His debts mounted. He couldn't afford to buy the farm machinery that might make the crop profitable in the long run. He just leaned harder and harder on his already overstretched corvée laborers. By 1910, Livingston was flagrantly violating the corvée laws. Unmarried women weren't supposed to do corvée labor, since they didn't have a spouse to stay at home and grow the food they would actually eat. Livingston dragged them up to the cotton fields anyway. Soon, many children joined them, and it still wasn't enough. So Livingston broke the two-month cap on corvée labor. He ordered his overseers to fudge the books. If your labor didn't meet their standards, you didn't get credit for having worked that day. A two-month obligation ballooned into six months. If you failed to show, Livingston's enforcers would beat you and burn down your hut. You couldn't even leave Magomero. You needed paperwork to prove to the government that you'd done your corvée, and Livingston kept that paperwork close. The colonial government knew what was going on, but wouldn't step in. Livingston was the largest landowner in the Highlands. His debts were huge, but he still had enough money to complicate your career if you crossed him. His name also granted him legitimacy. His older relative, the late Dr. David Livingston, was a legend in British Africa. No one wanted to go up against that name. Finally, and perhaps most relatably, the Magomero estate was conveniently placed. As officials made the rounds of the colony, they overnighted in Livingston's guest rooms all the time. There was almost no way around it. If you traveled around Malawi, you would eventually stop at Magomero. And if you had punished Livingston for his law-breaking, the stop would be awkward. Better, maybe, just to mind your own business. So, colonial officials' fear of Livingston's wallet, name, and social displeasure kept the lone way of Magomero in abject serfdom. Even fellow plantation owners were shocked by Livingston's caprice and casual brutality. He was supposed to pay his corvée workers, but only did so on a whim, and far less than the legal minimum. When touring his estate, he ordered beatings, seemingly at random. People learned to hide when they heard his bicycle coming. The British colonial system was undergirded by the fiction that the British were the good guys, that they followed the law and their subjects benefited from their benevolent rule. This was almost always a self-interested lie, but even fellow colonizers had a hard time maintaining it when Livingston was around. Ultimately, W.J. Livingston met his match in John Chalembwe, an indigenous Malawian preacher. 
Chalembwe served under a radical Scottish Baptist preacher in Malawi who exposed him to the idea of political equality between blacks and whites. Chalembwe then spent two years at a seminary in Virginia from 1897 to 1899 and was ordained as a Baptist minister while being exposed to radical American ideas about racial equality. In 1900, Chalembwe returned to Malawi to preach the gospel to his people and to try to lift them up to economic and legal parity with their British colonial rulers. He founded schools and churches, organized a Malawian-run industrial mission, and preached against conscripting Malawians to fight in World War I. At every turn, the authorities tried to stymie him, but had little success. They couldn't jail him because he was breaking no laws, and anyway, he was popular. His supporters would just bust him out of jail anyway. After 15 years of preaching, John Chalembwe finally conceded that the British would never permit racial equality. The only solution was to drive them out. He led an uprising in 1915. It didn't go far. Cells across Malawi were supposed to rise all at once, but most failed to do so. Only the cell Chalembwe led personally accomplished its mission, killing the most hated landlord in Malawi, W.J. Livingston. A week later, a British patrol shot John Chalembwe dead. At your table, a landlord inspired by W.J. Livingston would make an amazing villain. This sort of petty tyranny, someone who takes an unjust but manageable system and cranks up the injustice to 11, is something most of your players should be able to relate to. Even though we've hopefully never experienced anything as bad as Magomero, each element of the story is something many players have endured. A boss who expects you to work extra hours without pay, a landlord who doesn't care what legal protections you have, or a bystander who turns a blind eye because it's easy. Your players will get this villain, and that extra buy-in should create a better adventure. In real life, this story ended in violence, but at your table, it doesn't have to. Your players could push through the legal system until they find someone who cares enough to stop your Livingston analog. They could audit his books, get his debtors to collect early, launch an expose about him in Britain, or dig up blackmail that the colonial government will actually care about. Maybe your PCs have special contacts, skills, or powers that will help them resolve the situation peacefully. Or, if all else fails, they could go looking for a John Chalembwe analog and see what they can do to help his uprising succeed. Thank you very much for listening. A full transcript of this episode is available at MoltenSulfur.com. See you next week.